0: We don't often mention it, but when we are uh, praying here, remember all the classes going on over there. We've got kids' classes going on, teachers, and uh, it's, it's uh, praise the Lord now that we have uh, facilities to have them. Uh, it, they're so quiet, you can't hear them, so sometimes we forget we're here. We're not the only ones here tonight. We still have another thing going on over there. Uh, I talked to our, our uh, upcoming intern this week, and he is super excited about coming. He's going to plan to be here. Around June 1st, you will uh, jump in with both feet and uh, work with our teams for the summer. So, you'll be praying for Nick as we uh, look forward to seeing him come. Ruth is where we're at tonight. Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. And we are going to. I was, uh, as we finished off and, and talking about grace there for a while, I. I, I love character studies, and uh, I also like doing kind of going through the books of the different books of the Bible. And so this kind of does both Ruth, but as we uh, study her uh, life and her situation, the story of Ruth in the Bible is so uh, many faceted. It's just a lot of different avenues to the story. It's a life story. It's a love story. It's a historical story, and it's a spiritual story. Uh, all of these things that you can draw from the book of Ruth. Each facet of the story has lessons for us. Uh, as a life story, it reflects the struggles and the decisions of day-to-day life that we deal with even today. We're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, so it's it's very uh, today's newspaper type of story if you want to look at it that way. As a love story, it really has no equals. Ruth has been called the Cinderella of the Scriptures. And you'll see that as we go through uh, how fitting that is. It illustrates the high moral principles that are needed in romance and marriage even today. And uh, so that's a shining example for that. As a historical story, you see a lot of traditions and customs when it comes to welfare, business, government, marriage, uh, all these different things. Uh, you see the culture, as, and we'll break that down as we go through. And so that's kind of, this is several millennia ago, And yet we can see how they did things. And so as a historical book, that's interesting. I find that tremendously interesting as I read through the Bible. And then as a spiritual story, obviously this is the most important facet of the book of Ruth. It illustrates the great truths of redemption. (coughs) Not only does it illustrate redemption in a wonderful way, kind of in an allegory, but in a real story. More than that, it's an integral part of redemption in the fact that Ruth is an ancestress of Christ even though she's a Moabitess. And so, love to see how that works out, and the Lord does that. We're going to, uh, uh, you, you just can't do better than the book of Ruth for uh, interesting, uh, great truths that we're going to pull from it. A widowed woman, out of heathendom uh, pover- uh, and poverty, brought to love, marriage, and riches, and then having the great honor of motherhood in the line <coughs> of Jesus Christ himself. Great story, and so let's get into it uh, this evening. Starting in verse number 1, Ruth chapter 1, we'll read the first five verses tonight. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled (coughs) that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ah, Ephratites of Bethlehem Judah and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. The woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for the time of prayer we could share, and I pray you'd help us tonight as we close out with a challenge here, that you would bless the reading of your word and its use. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin the book of Ruth. It opens with ruin, and that's the title of our message tonight, Ruin. It was ruin that brings Ruth on the stage. It was ruin that led uh, Ruth, a Moabitess, to become part of a Jewish family. And eventually it resulted in her becoming an ancestress of Christ. But first, before you had all that happen, you see ruin enters into Elimelech's family, and it was a great ruin. According to chapter 1, verse 21, uh, they're described from going from fullness to emptiness. But emptiness was not the end of the story. Praise God for that. Our emptiness, by the way, does not mean It's the end of our story either. God can always turn things around. But before the book ends, the grace of God caused that emptiness to be replaced again with fullness. God brought life uh, where death had reigned. He brings rejoicing and promise uh, into hearts that had been emptied of all joy and hope. It's a great picture of salvation. Sin brings ruin. Sin brings heartache. Sin sin empties us, as we'll see tonight here in a moment. Uh, A Redeemer uh, then is pictured in Boaz, the great rescuer of the ruined. That's what a Redeemer uh, is, and that's what Boaz was in this story. (coughs) In this first message of Ruth, I want to look at the ruin. Now, it begins with a famine, a famine of food. Now, there's 13 famines uh, mentioned in the Bible. This is one of them. Uh, that says it happened in verse one in the days when the judges ruled. This was when the famine came. This is the time period between that uh, li- between the rule of Joshua and then the rule of the kings. Uh, there was a time period there, according to the book of Acts chapter thirteen. It was four hundred and fifty years. Uh, thirteen judges ruled in all uh, in, in that time. In that four hundred fifty years, the first one was Othniel. And then the last one was Samuel. We all know the Samuel. When they demanded a king, he was the last judge that ruled. In between were some well-known judges and a bunch of ones we probably couldn't even name either. Uh, there was Jephthah, there was Gideon, there was Samson. Those are some well-known ones. And then some that weren't so well-known. A whole book is written about this period, and that is the book of, of course, book of Judges. Now, we don't know exactly what or when in the 450-year period (coughs) this took place, Uh, although Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, so it was not too far uh, before David, but uh, we don't know exactly when it happened. It doesn't really matter. The point was uh, of telling us it was a time when the judges ruled is it wanted to give us kind of the spiritual climate of what the time they lived in, I believe, here. Uh, The reference to the time period is so we can know the character of the time. And this period was not a good period in Israel's history. It was an evil period, which makes the grace of God uh, coming into this time even more marvelous. It doesn't matter how dark of a day you live in, God's grace can still make a great difference. And it can still make an impact. And uh, so the period of the Judges was a time of moral and spiritual degradation. In the book of Judges, eight times the Bible says that Israel (coughs) did evil in the sight of the Lord or did great evil in the sight of the Lord eight different times the interesting thing is that while the bible says they did a great evil in the sight of the Lord they did not think they were doing evil in fact four times in the book of judges this verse i'll read verse chapter 21 verse 25 it's the last verse wraps up uh, all the uh, thinking of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Four times, that verse is in the book of Judges. Four times, they, uh, it, it basically is telling us that they thought they were doing just fine, yet they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. <clears throat> if you had asked them, if you had knocked on their door uh, and uh, <clears throat> witnessed to them with a gospel tract, and ask them if they uh, know the Lord, if they're a Christian, oh yes. In fact, I'm living right. I'm living for the Lord. They This wasn't living how they wanted to. This wasn't like it was before the flood, where every man did evil continually. This was them doing right in their own eyes. But it's an example of really bad eyesight, because at the same time that they said they were doing right, God said they were doing evil. Now I ask you, does that remind you of any other time like right now in our nation, in our society, if you knock on any door, they'll tell you the same thing. Oh, yes, I'm a good person. I do. I mean, uh, they'll, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. And they may be living like the devil and still say that because people have, or tend to have, really bad eyesight. Not that we do not have, I believe, a populace today. No, of course, there's some that are just flat out anti God and and hate God, and curse God. I know there's some, but for the most part, John Q. Public is not out there shaking his fist to the heavens and cursing God. They're not having that type of attitude. They're just doing what they think is good, and what they think is right. And uh, they're not trying to be wicked. They're just doing what's right in their own eyes. The problem is bad eyesight. Because you see, the Bible uh, is very clear that God does not judge you According to what you or I think is right. God judges according to what he says is right. And this is why it's so important we don't get caught up to the type of mindset that was in the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. God will judge according to his standard, not according to society's standard. So today, uh, just give you, we could list many, many sins, but just (coughs) pick one out of a hat. I still believe it is a sin before God to cohabit before marriage. I don't think people ought to live together before marriage. That is a very accepted thing in our society today. So somebody can be living together before marriage and think absolutely nothing of it because they're doing right, what, in their own eyes. Does that remove God's judgment for that sin? No, it does not because God does not judge according to our standard or society's Acceptance. He judges according to his standard. It'd be good for us to remember. Now I'm not. uh, I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail here. So let's get back to our story. There were some great men during this time of the judges, but they were the exception, not the rule. (coughs) We even went through the book of Gideon, and Gideon landed on his nose at the end of his life. He he wasn't. He didn't have a great end. And uh, Samson had did some great things, but he didn't have a good end either. Understanding the period of the time when this famine took place really kind of helps us understand probably why the famine came in the first place. One of the judgments of God on Israel for their sin was a famine. Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, 2 Chronicles chapter 6 all talk about this, using a famine as a judgment on Israel. With all the evil during the period of the judges, there would be plenty of cause for God to bring this famine uh, to the people, the fact that there were that there wasn't even uh, more issues and more problems and more judgment is a testimony to God's grace, not a testimony to the people's goodness. So, the fact that the famine came was probably judgment from God. Because consider the place. The Bible here uses <coughs> uses a hyphen, Bethlehem Judah, in verse one. Uh, today we would use a comma, Brookings, South Dakota. Uh, th- this, is a, this is Bethlehem in Judah. And uh, it was located around six miles south of Jerusalem. The town is very famous today because that David and Jesus were both born in Bethlehem. But again, remember this is before either one of them were born there. <coughs> so uh, this Bethlehem was not a big deal yet. But before our story is over, we're going to see that Ruth is in that line and and that's a blessing. Now, a famine in Bethlehem, the reason I bring this up, is is that it's inconsistent because of, number one, its name and then also its region that was in. You know what the name Bethlehem means? The house of bread. And it was in a very fertile plain. It was a very fertile place uh, of Judah there. And there should not have been a famine in that area. So why... Was what shouldn't have been there. Well, it was because of sin. Uh, sin always distorts what should be into ruin. Sin will always do that to every one of our lives as well. In our Christian lives, it'll do the same. Uh, people, uh, Christians, like Bethlehem, there's, you know, they were living in a fertile area, they're living in a place that means house of bread, and yet they're having a famine. Christians can be the same way, they can have a Bible. They can even belong to a good church. Uh, they can have all kinds of spiritual uh, advantages and yet bear absolutely no spiritual fruit and uh, live in ruin, uh, we could say, a spiritual famine in their lives. Like in Bethlehem, there can be a contradiction between your profession and your performance and the problem is almost always sin. Sin robs that from us. Sin always changes fruitfulness to famine. and We need to be so careful of that. Now, the Bible says a certain man went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, Moab, this man wasn't far from Bethlehem, by the way. We're talking about 30 miles. So Moab was not affected by the famine. This is why they were going there, presumably. Now, some may wonder why Moab, which was an unholy nation, was immune to the famine, but Israel was not the Answer, again, I believe, is that God was chastening <coughs> Israel because they were his people. Moab would be dealt with in due time, but they will be dealt with under different principles. Uh, God always chastens his children, sends judgments to his children for corrective purposes, not destructive purposes. What did he do to Sodom and Gomorrah? He wiped them out. That was a destruction uh Judgment—that was judgment to the wicked—but to hear uh, God to His children, He sends corrective. Now, the Bible calls it chastisement. Uh, Hebrews chapter twelve, verse eight. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. So the Bible says, if you're a child of God, you're going to suffer chastisement. You're going to God will use chastisement to bring you to where you need to be. Now, the word for chastisement there in Hebrews 12, 8, original word is paideia. It's an instrument aimed at increase, I'm sorry, instruction aimed at increasing virtue. And it also means the evils God visits men for their amendment. It's, in other words, could be called corrective punishment. A good parent will do this with their children. A good parent uh, will, and I believe 100% in spanking, I believe that is a. Uh, I did not believe in that as a child. It's something I grew into as I matured. Amen. So as I became an adult, all of a sudden, became a strong proponent of it. Amen. Uh, but I do believe strongly in spanking. I, I think that's the mode of it. Uh, we could go through Proverbs and see it all throughout there. Uh, but uh, but we don't do that because we want to hurt them. We don't do that because we want to get even. In fact. A good parent, you probably have been here when you realize uh, there were times when my children were smaller uh, that when I had to give a spanking, I would try to hold off because I don't want to do it in anger. I I want to do it calmly. Uh, Irma Bombeck, uh, the the, uh, comedy lady writes columns and stuff, she said that she was so disappointed when she heard you shouldn't spank when you're angry. She says that's when it feels so good to do it, Uh, but that's not when we should do it. Uh, we, uh, we don't do it to hurt them. We want to correct their behavior. We don't want to de- them to do that anymore. And so we're trying to apply a little pain to avoid much pain down the road. That's what a spanking is for. That's called corrective punishment. Now, if you beat them just to uh, get even with something they did wrong, that's not corrective punishment. That is destructive punishment, and uh, it's not a good thing. But uh, let's move on here. There's the failure in the ruin here. The, the, The famine was not the worst part of the ruin that we see here. It was a mistake for Elimelech to move his family from Bethlehem to Moab. The marriages of his sons to the women of Moab. These failures involved moral and spiritual failures. The famine of food only brought ruin to the physical and the material. But the ruin of the spiritual is always so much worse than the ruin of the physical. Let me read you a few statements. Personal failure is always worse than situational failure. Uh, A famine in morals is far worse than a famine in the material. A famine of food for the soul is much more harmful than a famine for the food of the spirit, of, uh, of the body. So we... Now, we don't always look at at life that way because when we're hungry, that's what we're thinking about. When we have physical needs, that's what we're thinking about, and it overshadows our spiritual needs. But as Christians, and especially as we mature in Christ, we had better, as Paul said, bring my body under subjection and uh, control that. Uh, Scripture warns of spiritual famine. Amos 8.11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. I don't know about you, but I read that verse this week, it, it, it sends a chill down my spine. Think about that. If we were suddenly robbed of the Word of God, not only for our personal benefit, but as a land, as a people. Just look at your history and, and study <coughs> what, what brought the Dark Ages out of the Dark Ages. This thing right here brought the Dark Ages out. Uh, that, this is what brought light to the Dark Ages. Uh, this is what brought what the Enlightenment, was it called, when uh, people started to being able to get the Bible printed. This, this changed everything, and I can't imagine uh, that type of spiritual famine. We don't want to be caught up in that at all. Uh, then the, there was a disobedience in the move. The move to Moab was one of disobedience. The Israelites were to live in the land that God gave them. It was a part of the covenant blessing that God had made with Abraham, Isaac. <coughs> For the, a person to forsake the land was almost like a denial of your faith. Joshua warned Israel in chapter 23 of Joshua, verse 7, come not among these nations, these that remain among you. We're not to move in with the world in good times or bad times. And we need to be where God wants us to be. And we are to be bloom where we're planted. I've always loved that saying. Wherever God puts you, bloom there. Uh, be where you need to be. And we need to... It's such a temptation today to run to the world for... To solve all our problems when uh, that can be such a mistake. The distrust in the move. Not only was it disobedient, but dis, there's a distrust there. Uh, it, it, it said that Elimelech did not trust God to take care for him, uh, of him in the land where he's supposed to live. Can God provide for Elimelech in Israel? Famine or no famine, he sure could. David said at the end of his life, I've been old, I've been young, now I'm old, I've never seen the righteous begging bread. God can take care of his. But Elimelech looked at the famine through the eyes of the flesh rather than the eyes of faith. The real test of a man's faith is when he's put to the test, when he gets hungry, when he gets thirsty. And uh, it's easy to walk by faith when everything's going well, isn't it? Every, the sun's shining, the weather's nice, everything's going great, bills are paid. Uh, and and it's easy to have faith then. It's a lot harder when the going gets tough. Tough times reveal what sort of faith we have. Difficult times will either drive you closer to the Lord or it'll draw you further from God. I see it every day of my life in ministry here. Uh, how... I, I see the different reactions of how people deal with hard, hard problems. Talked to several today. Uh, problems have kept them away from following God, kept them out of church, where other people our Problems drive them closer to the Lord. We better respond right to our problems. If we respond to a hard time by running to the world for help, away from God, we're going to get ourselves in trouble, just like Elimelech did. Uh, he left the land of covenant and moved to a heathen nation. His name meant, God is my king, but he did not live it, did not live his own name. Moving to Moab was walking by faith, not walking by faith, it was walking by sight. Now here's an interesting thing, verse 21, if you want to be, get down to semantics, it seems <laughs> that they went before they needed to go. In verse 21, the Bible says, he and his family went out full. He did not leave after the famine impoverished him, if that's true, but before he suffered much loss. This only emphasizes his weakness and his lack of faith. He hadn't even, according to that verse, if they were still full when they left, if they uh, hadn't been uh, down to their last bread like the widow Elijah was, uh, this uh, really emphasizes the weakness of his faith. Hard times are coming, let's go before we're broke. Others, like Boaz, stayed home. They uh, survived, but Elimelech evidently was too materialistic to risk any loss in the will of God. Now, let me make a statement, and Jesus really rewords this, so I can't take credit for originality, (laughs) but let me just make this statement here. People who are unwilling to lose anything to be obedient to God will eventually lose everything. Say that again. People who are unwilling to lose anything in obedience to God will soon or eventually lose everything. We see it in this book of Ruth. Jesus said it in Mark 8.35, Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. We have a whole generation of people trying to save their life, trying to get happiness, trying to get fulfillment, trying to gather up stuff, uh, gathering money and things and possessions and security and four hundred one ks, trying to get everything they can, saving their life, and they end up losing it. What a sad thing! It's better to live in Bethlehem in a time of famine than to live in Moab in a time of plenty. Amen. I'm going to cut it right there, uh, and then we'll start next week on the on <coughs> what.